All right, guys, we're gonna go ahead and get started. So if you guys are sticking around for the after salt, please go ahead and take a seat. Let's try to keep it in these first few rows of these center sections. Those of you walking out the door, you're making a big mistake. All right, guys, come on up and grab a seat if you're sticking around for Can I Trust My Bible? All right, guys, come on up. All right, guys, we, like, uh, like Shay said earlier and like Jake said earlier, we have Mark and Amanda Jackson. Mark is an elder here at Candeo Church, and his wife and him are just awesome. So we're really grateful to have them. Let's go ahead and give them a, a round of applause. Give them a hand for being here. Yeah, so I'll, I'll let you guys just run with it. Go for it. Okay, so tonight... We are going to be going over the question, can I trust the Bible? And so there's many ways to look at this, and we're going to start from the framework that God exists so that we come from there. So if you're struggling with does God exist, is, can I even have faith in something? That's another question that feel free to talk with us about it afterwards, any other time. But we're going to look at the Bible as someone that believes God exists, and you may be exploring should I have faith in Jesus or you already have faith in Jesus? And then what do I trust in the Bible? So we're going to ask a handful of questions and give some answers that add up to the trustworthiness of the Bible. So Amanda, can you start us off with what is the Bible? Yes. Yeah, so um, a definition that we kind of came up with is um, the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word of God that reveals God's plan of redemption to sinful humanity and communicates how to live in that restored relationship. So we're gonna be kind of referring back to this definition throughout our talk. Um, but the first phrase we wanna focus on is, um, it says the word of God that reveals God's plan. So um, how does he reveal his plan to us? Mark's gonna talk about um, what is that revelation? Yeah, so when we're looking at the Bible, there are two forms of revelation that are shown in there. And so the first one is general revelation. And that one actually doesn't take the Bible to understand. So that is what is revealed in creation. So it's general to all people. They can see that. The Bible speaks in Psalm 19, verse 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. And then another common verse that's used to talk about uh, the general knowledge of God in creation is Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. And so R.C. Sproul sums it up pretty clearly in what can we see from creation is that God exists, that he is good, and that he is powerful. And so just from general revelation, 
we can see certain characteristics about God, but that doesn't tell us how does a sinful person that's separated from God have a restored relationship with him. And that's why we need the Bible. That's why we need special revelation where God reveals himself, not just the general character of his goodness, but he reveals what specifically is love. God shows us what his character is, what his love is through his plan of redemption in Jesus Christ. And also this special revelation in the Bible shows us how as a covenant people, we are to live in relationship with him. And so there are a couple pitfalls that you can walk into when you're looking at the Bible here in the special revelation. And one is to view God as too much like us. That view holds that you can fully understand God, that we have human wisdom, we have human reason. So if we just think hard enough, we're going to be able to understand God. And so just like there is the evolutionary theory of biology, where you start with a small organism and it grows into something greater, this view is called the evolutionary theory of religion. It starts off with thinking, okay, people in the Old Testament, they needed a lot of rules. They needed a lot of regulations because they didn't know how to have a society. They didn't know how to not just go slaughter each other and kill each other. So they needed God to be very strict and teach them those things. Then you get to Jesus. They've evolved as humans. They understand more. So it says, oh, love God, love people. Okay, we can understand that. And now we've gone 2,000 years, and these people would say, society has evolved. We don't actually need the Bible to teach us anymore about God and religion. We can do that on our own. We can set up our own society. And so that's one pitfall that devalues the Bible, and it really elevates humanity and de-elevates God. And so that was something that we would say is an error. And then the other is the response to that, that they're looking and saying, okay, we are modern people, we understand these things, but God, he is holy, he is great, he's awesome. So we have to have something here. And so that just elevates Jesus and only Jesus' words at the detriment of the rest of the Bible. So those would be the people that, they only wanna read the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because that's all about Jesus. And so there's actually a school of theology that's looking for the quest of the real Jesus. They're only trying to find his specific words, and then the rest of the Bible, that's not that important. And so what would be said of that is, special revelation is embodied in Jesus alone. And to consider the Bible as objective truth and revelation would be to detract from the uniqueness of the person of Jesus, the word made flesh. And so that may be some of you that you just have a natural tendency like, I really like the words of Jesus, so I'm just gonna keep reading those over and over. But you miss out on even what Jesus taught because Jesus, when he was confronted with the Pharisees, when we're looking at this passage in John 10, when Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount talking about morality, he doesn't say, hey, actually, you don't have the word of God. He's saying you have the wrong interpretation of the word of God. So he's working on the interpretation. He's not denying that that is valuable, the word of God. And so Jesus himself promotes the words of the prophet. And then we also see elsewhere that the apostles are confirming that this is scripture as well. And so just a simple verse here, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That was the first salt that was in the building this year. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so I just want us to see that all of the Bible 
is trustworthy according to that verse, but we're going to show you how did it come together? How can we actually trust that? So, Amanda, the question we have now is, how did the Bible come to exist? Okay, so we're going to refer back to that long definition I gave. Um, The phrase we're going to work on is, it is the inspired word of God. So we're going to look at inspiration. Um, How did God inspire and who did God inspire? And a verse that goes along with that is 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, and it says, Above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Mark's going to get into um, the modes of inspiration. Yeah, so people have different ideas on how the biblical authors were inspired to write down the Bible. So you have a view on one and the extreme that is a view that devalues the Word of God and elevates the person in this, and that's the illumination theory. So that the person just had a heightened understanding of spirituality, that maybe the Holy Spirit influenced them so they could see more clearly, but it's not the words of God. The Bible is just some good sayings that very spiritual people came up with. And the illumination theory, you can think of it as the person that woke up in the morning and is a little groggy is like all of us, and the person that's already had their caffeine for the morning is the person that God had write down the Bible. And so they, they're nothing special. There's nothing great about them. They just happen to see more clearly on a given day. And so we would say that that is not true at all, that the Bible is the very word of God. And so at Candeo, we would hold to the verbal theory of inspiration in that the Holy Spirit inspired the authors to write down the very words that God wanted them to write. And how did that happen? Wasn't a force mechanistic moving the hand and they had no interaction at all. But instead, the Spirit of God has been ordaining history all along. So he's shaping the lives of the biblical authors such that their life experience, such that their personality would be able to communicate the very words that God wanted to be written on the page. And so seeing that you're going to have distinct styles. When you're reading the Apostle Paul, it's going to be very different than when you're reading Peter or you're reading Moses in the, early, in the Old Testament. So you're seeing that the personality of the author is there, but it's also communicating the, what God wanted to be communicated. And so that leads us into how did God inspire them to write in? Who did God inspire Yeah, so in the Old Testament, he inspired the prophets. They were the messengers of God, and I think it's like 416 times in the Old Testament you hear the phrase, thus says the Lord, and then 336 times you hear the phrase, declares the Lord. So they're literally writing down the words of the Lord. And uh, in the New Testament, you have the apostles, who are 12 men who were sent out by Jesus to teach and to act in his name. And then finally, you have Jesus Christ himself, who in John 1.14, it says, is the word of God made flesh. Um, Yeah, so, but I mean, pretty much you could have a lot of false prophets. There's a lot of false prophets that came before Christ and a lot of false prophets that came after Christ. They wrote things down. So how do we really decide what forms the Bible, that who was actually inspired by God to write it down, not just illuminated that they were able to look. Because you and me, when we read the word of God, the spirit illuminates to help us understand, but we're not inspired that says this is the word of the Lord. So how did we come up with the Bible we have today, the canon? 
Yeah, so this is like a huge question, and I'm kind of a history nerd, so I'm going to try not to like geek out a little bit. But um, yeah, this falls under canonicity. I think an important word to note when you um, think about the canon is that we would say it has been received. And that word is important because the church did not make or create the Bible. The church received the Bible. And by using this word, uh, the early church communicated and acknowledged that the Bible comes from God himself. Um, so the canon was established formally in the fourth century, and not because the early church didn't have the books, um, but they decided to make a formal list of the biblical books they were already using as a reaction to heresy at the time. So instead of some people forming their own canon, they were like, no, 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 this is actually the word of God. Um, and we want to submit this to um, the church for all time, that this is the Bible, the word of God. Um, and so in order to be included in this formal list, they gave a threefold test to each book. So there are three marks of a book to be included in the canon. And the first is that it is of apostolic origin. So an apostle had to have written the book or um, say Luke, who was not an apostle. It's well known that he traveled with Paul. So it fell under the apostle Paul's authority. Um, the second mark is that it had to have been in use by the early church. Um, so these books, as soon as they were written, were circulated around. And so it's well known what books um, the early church was using. And then the third marker um, to be included in the canon is that the doctrine and teaching of the books had to align with core books of the Bible. Yeah, so... Looking there, so we have this formed Bible that the church received, and we said that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. And so I want to look at what does inerrant mean? Because we're saying that there's no error in the Bible, but what does that mean? If you just pick up uh, Jake's translation of the Bible, Jake decides he wants to translate a Bible and write down what he wants. Is that going to be inerrant, or what do we mean by that phrase? that there's no error in the Bible. And so that is talking about the autographs. That would be the original copies of what was written down, that there is no error in there. There is com perfectly communicated what God wanted to be written down. Then there are the manuscripts, that what we have left today, that some of those are from the second century. The, you have some uh, very early ones that are um, copies and fragments of maybe even at the end of the first century. And those ones, you they piece them together, and you can see that the copyists, that there are some subtle differences, but for the vast majority, you can assume that it matches the autograph. And your Bible actually even marks most of the times in the New Testament when it doesn't. So if you look at Mark chapter 16, you look at the end of it, there's going to be a line there, and it says, after this, the earliest manuscripts don't have it. So they have recognized when someone added something, and that was not to change the theology. They think that someone got to the end of it and said, oh, wait, no one actually finished the story of the book of Mark. Maybe we should add the rest of the story. And so that's why it is likely included, and it's just included in your Bible today for historical purposes. But that would likely not fall under what was considered the autograph, the inerrant part of it. And then translations. What I would have to say about translations, there if it's somebody doing it on their own or even one church or one group that's translating the Bible, 
since none of us in this room probably has a thorough grasp of Greek and Hebrew, we really have to rely on those translations. And that's why it's important to have the church universal vet that out, that you have many people looking at this translation, so it is not one person saying, oh, look, I have this secret knowledge of John 1 that I'm gonna be able to teach you something the rest of the, all the Christians of the world don't know. So we're able to look and submit, not just as one individual, our understanding, but we're able to see that the church can come together, that the collective understanding of the Holy Spirit helps us to regulate and understand what God wants communicated there. Yeah, okay, so we are moving into the content of the Bible, um, and what do we do with difficult passages? Show of hands, who's ever read something in the Bible, and they were like, what? I can't believe that's in there. I don't like that. I'm uncomfy. Um, what do we do with those passages, Mark? Well, I think that falls into two different categories, and they take different approaches. So, the first category, I would say, is there's actions of sinful humanity that are recorded in the Bible. So you're going to see on Sunday when you guys show up for church, we're going through judges, and they're going to cut up a body and send it out. And the Bible doesn't say, wow, that is wicked. And so you're reading through there, and you're like, okay, the Bible doesn't say that's wrong. What's the Bible saying? I really think that that's terrible. And what the Bible, like any book, it assumes that you know the content of the book. So the Judges does not say every single thing is specifically right or wrong because it assumes that you know the first five books of the Bible that would clearly tell you that what they're doing is sinful, that God is saying that is the wrong thing. So a lot of times when we have difficult passages to swallow, maybe we need to keep reading so that we can see, oh wait, God has declared that is wrong elsewhere in the Bible. That verse right there is not specifically reiterating that was a sinful person. What Samson did um, and taking in a prostitute, that's sinful. It doesn't say that right in that verse, but the rest of the Bible declares that as wrong. So those are the ones I think that are easier to come to terms with. The other ones are when God specifically commands something that is, wow, that really goes against what I feel is right. And so our feelings can often be wrong, and there's many areas in that. But one of them, you look in what happened before the judges, it's the conquest of the promised land. So you're reading in Joshua about the slaughter of people groups. And so looking, if you read anything in the news, you're like, wow, genocide is terrible. And that happens throughout all of our world. Is our God commanding genocide? What is different about what God is saying there? And so like, that's a big question that comes up when, what do we do with those passages? And so ultimately, I would say that Christians today, we do not have a right to holy war. So do not interpret that passage in that way, saying that we should be able to go kill people because they don't believe in God. I think that's a specific command for the people of Israel. And I want to show you how that you can't look at that as the God of the Old Testament was judgmental, mean, angry, vindictive, and now Jesus is all love because you're missing what Jesus was actually saying. And when Jake was saying that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus also says he's going to come back as the lion of Judah. Jesus is going to judge the nations, and there will be an eternal judgment. So just like when they went into the promised land and there was a judgment upon the people, there will one day be an eternal judgment. So we can't figure, forget about that and think that the New Testament is all love, mercy, all these happy things, when ultimately the story ends with a great judgment of God, and it really should challenge us that 
are we gonna submit all of our lives, all of our thoughts to God, or are we going to determine what is right and wrong for God to do? Um, so that is the ones that are difficult to accept. And now we have the ones that are difficult to interpret. What are we gonna do with things that seem like contradictions? Yeah, I think some good um, uh, principles of interpretation can help with that. So one principle uh, when you're interpreting the Bible is scripture interprets scripture. So less clear passages of scripture are interpreted through more clear passages of scripture. So an example of this is you may be reading a parable in Matthew that's unclear, but it has a cross reference to the same parable in Luke, which may have a more detailed description. So right away, you're already clearing up something, but it's with scripture. And if you're not sure what cross references are, usually there's like a small letter next to a word, and um, another passage, like the paragraph, it links to a paragraph. And the, the editor of your Bible does that to link um, maybe verses referred in the Old Testament to the New Testament or linking different themes throughout the Bible. So right away, um, if you're not familiar um, enough with all of the Bible, um, you have that help for you right there. Yeah, and so then the other one besides Scripture interprets Scripture, the other principle is harmonization. And so you may look at it and say, well, the Bible contradicts itself, is inconsistent. If you look here in 1 Kings, or it says there were 97,300 soldiers. And if you look at Second Chronicles, it says there's 100,000 soldiers. See, so look at the numbers are different, and obviously that is an error in the Bible. But harmonization tells you, you need to read these literally, recognizing that when something is a rounded number, when something is the exact number, and there's instances like that, and we need to look and see, okay, these can be harmonized because conceptually they're communicating the same thing in a different way. Um, this is gonna lead you to a better, well-rounded Bible study is reading it with literacy in mind, that you are a literate person knowing that the genre communicates certain things, you're looking for the message communicated. Um, also, when we're looking at harmonization, there are certain things that you can't look at and say, scripture interprets scripture. There are five passages that talk about sovereignty of God over here, four that talk about free will over here. Because there's five on the sovereignty of God, all of those get to interpret the ones on free will. Goodbye free will, we only have the sovereignty of God. That is not in a proper way and you're gonna to lead to untrustworthy readings of the Bible. Because interpretation, really, if you have poor interpretation, you can't trust yourself in that. So that's why it's good to have people reading it with you and realizing we can harmonize these things, that we need to keep thinking, how is a complex God communicating complex ideas to us? And we keep studying them. And so finally, we also need to be humble and say, some of this is just gonna be a mystery to us. Not a paradox, because a paradox are saying two opposite things that can never be reconciled. A mystery is, God, you say two things, I don't get how they get together, but someday I'm gonna be in heaven with you, and please explain to me that mystery on that day. So finally, getting to the trustworthiness of the Bible, and just the conclusion on here, I just want you to see that the Spirit of God inspired the Bible to be written, and the Spirit of God, for those of who, us who believe, 
confirms it in us and helps us to live that out. That second Timothy where it says, so the man of God may be complete. The whole Bible helps us to be complete in our understanding so that we may do every good work. We cannot understand what is good on our own. We need God to help us understand that and the whole Bible does that. Anything you'd like to finish off with? Um, just an encouragement to all of you to be men and women of the Bible, um, to read the Bible for yourself and see that it is true and trustworthy. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. I think we're going to have some time for questions. So if anyone has any questions, feel free to ask. Hopefully you have questions. Otherwise, I have to make them up. Does anybody have a question off the top of their head? Anybody? Yeah. You can just speak up. Yeah. Well, that's a very nice question. That was one of the ones I wrote down. So um, the additional books are the Apocrypha. And so those are the intertestamental books. And so the New Testament, we had the church receives it. The Old Testament, you're looking and relying upon Judaism to have made that interpretation, the scriptures of Jesus' day. But then there's a discrepancy and a disagreement over what that Old Testament was at the time. And so the Apocrypha, the Catholic um, books, are what was typically in use in Alexandria in that day, in the days of the early church. And then what would have been in use in Jerusalem would be what we have as the Old Testament today. And so... The difference is, are those intertestamental books that are generally history, are those inspired by God, or are those also just good writings? Because they're talking about the canon. One of the books we didn't even talk about in the New Testament, it's not in there, is first, you have First Peter, you have First John, but then there's also First Clement, who wrote after the apostles, and then you look at the internal evidence in there, and he's not claiming to have the authoritative inspired word of God, even though that is still good truth that was written, much like any pastor that could write a good letter today. And that's what we would say that those books that are in the Catholic Bible are, there's a lot of good truth in there, but it's not the inerrant inspired word of God. I'll take a crack at it, I guess. I would say that, um, for one, it's prophecy, which is difficult to understand, and it's prophecy that hasn't yet happened. Um, where if you look in the Old Testament, we can read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, um, with confidence that those have been fulfilled in Christ. Um, so that would be my, my answer. Yeah, adding to that, Revelation is difficult in the sense of how to interpret some of these things. And you actually need to know a lot of the Bible because most of it is just quotes of imagery throughout the whole Bible. So that's why it's actually a challenge that if you wanna just pick up a revelation without reading the rest of the Bible, you're probably gonna make some poor assumptions because there's images from Ezekiel, there's images through the Psalm, like there's images from everywhere. And so you need to know a lot of the Bible to really understand it, which great, I think people should wholeheartedly try to study that, but you need to know a lot of the Bible to really understand it well.
Well, humans have made their best effort to tamper with the Bible, I would say, that you have people thousands of years ago that were trying to do it for their own political gain, and you have people today trying to do it for their own political gain. That, that's why I was saying in the difference between the autograph and the manuscript and the translations are what are people adding, changing to suit their needs. And so really it's ultimately looking at what is the church historically done, where it wasn't just Constantine or um, Marcion, I think is how you pronounce his name, where he had his own Bible. That's why they had to come up with the canon, is the church was using it, and then somebody started throwing books out of the Bible and adding other books. And so that's why the church had to come together and say, no, what do we all agree on, not just one group? And so that's where I would say is generally look and see what the church universal is agreeing upon. Okay, so I mean, that's a, a great question. It's hard to answer in a short, simple way. Um, I assume this is a Muslim friend that you're talking about, or someone at least exploring that. And so like, you can look and work on, there's a lot of apologetic books out there working on just uh, the historical validity of Jesus and his message, where you, from that aspect, you probably, it's easier to talk about like how sure we are of the resurrection rather than all of scripture. Unless you want to start in the Old Testament and start working your way through there. But the reality of the resurrection is kind of a key truth for anyone. Like when I was serving in East Asia, like you can share about Jesus all the time and people are like, oh, I want someone to love me. I want to be part of a family. Great, I'll become a Christian. Resurrection of the dead? Uh, yeah, no, that doesn't happen. Never mind. So, like, really pinning it to Jesus' resurrection, that's really somewhere that I'd start with anyone on the trustworthiness of the Bible or of, or of Christianity. I have a question. Uh, what resource, Amanda, would you recommend for people just asking more on this question? Um, yeah, there's this book called Can I Trust the Bible by R.C. Sproul. And you can um, read it in one hour. Yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, this is a great short, quick book um, to get your feet wet. If you're interested in the canon, um, there's a book called Canon Revisited by Michael J. Kruger. Um, he spent a lot of his uh, life working on um, the re reliability of the canon. Yeah, and so that book, R.C. Sproul, is part of the Crucial Question series. So. Is, I think there's 27 books in there. They're all like 50 pages. You can read them in an hour. If you're a slow reader. Maybe it takes you two. But uh, they're, I mean, they're a great resource. He does a great job of putting it in terms that someone that's read a lot of the Bible will be able to take something from, and someone that has limited experience with Christianity can take something from. So it's like, who is Jesus? What is baptism? Can I be assured that I'm saved? And the great thing about these things, they're like $2.00. And the better thing is, if you get the electronic version, they're free. So it's not like you have to put a lot of money in there. So 
Go on Amazon, Crucial Question Series by R.C. Sproul. There's a lot of good resources out there. No questions, then I'll end us in prayer then. Okay. Father God, we delight in knowing you. We delight in knowing that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd, the one that lays down his life for us, not the one that comes to pillage and plunder us like a hired hand, the one that is coming to harm us, but instead Jesus cares. He loves us, God, and ultimately Jesus Christ is worthy. He is the one that is worthy of all of our praise, God. He is worthy of us to examine his word, to study it, to delight in it, to meditate it, to think about it, God, that we would have our lives changed, not because of anything that someone says at SALT or any connection group we have, but instead, God, we are transformed because your spirit moves inside of us as we read your word, God, that we find a place that is trustworthy and true because we find your word, God, that is unchanging, God, you are unchanging, and let us be moved by that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.